Hello, everybody. It is great to be here one time again. My name is Gary Fowler, and I am the host of GSD Presents Silicon Valley AI and Tech. I'm a serial entrepreneur with 17 startups on under my belt. I've been involved in two unicorns. I was on the original management team at Click Software, which was sold to Salesforce for $1.35 billion, and also Eva.ai, an AI HR tech company. We love artificial intelligence and quantum computing and believe that intellectual capacity is evenly spread around the world, but opportunities are not. And with that, I'd like to have a, have a great friend and um, incredible entrepreneur, Frody Odegaard. He's the CEO and chairman of the Post-Industrial Institute, a global research and consulting firm helping companies and private equity firms navigate, exploit, and engage in disruptive innovation. I almost said revolution, but it is revolution sometimes, isn't it? Uh, he works with boards and CEOs to provide extensive education, workshops, and strategic advice. I met Frody when I was out at Boot Up out in California in Menlo Park and uh, spent a lot of time with him. I've seen the incredible things that he's been able to do. So with that, I'll bring Frody on board. Hi, Frody. What's going on? Hey, it's great to, it's great to be here. It's a, it's a gray, gray overcast morning here in Silicon Valley. No, nah, it's uh, I'll be out there in a couple of weeks. It's an amazing place. So, Frody, how are you making out with your Aikido? Oh, it's going pretty well. I'm I'm I should be finally, finally doing my black belt test this year. So, um, yeah, I spent about five days a week now in the dojo. So, um, now how long you've been studying for your black belt? Well, uh, this is my eighth training year. So I, maybe I'm a slow student, but I've been at it for a while. I was actually supposed to do my test just before the lockdowns came. And then the dojo had to shut down, so it got postponed. But, but you know, it's, it's not the, the call of your belt. It's the skill that counts, not the rank. So the rank comes. Now that's great. So, well, congratulations on that. So tell us a little bit about, you know, I, I looked at it. You got more languages than anybody I've ever seen. So you're originally oh. from Norway, right? I grew up in Norway. The, the language thing is, you know, it's easily explained in in part, I think, by the fact that that if you grow up in a small European country, um, they don't dub television, they don't dub the movies. So you're exposed to a bunch of languages. They're kind of all around you. And then also one of my hobbies is historical linguistics. And so that's why I can read Faroese and a bit of Icelandic and Old Norse and so on. So just for fun, even some Russian. So, so you like, why would you want to read Old Norse? What, what, what was that all about? Well, I think just like in, in, it, it used to be the case that, that in the West, you know, any educated person would have some Greek and Latin in school. I think for a Nordic person, being able to read some Old Norse, being able to read the old Viking sagas is, you know, it's just, it's part of your cultural heritage. So it's nice to be able to access that. And the sagas are, you know, they rock. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Now, I got a question for you. Now, I, I there's a TV show I watched from Norway about uh, Thor. And I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a, it's kind of like the uh, Superman in Norway kind of like a TV series that they have over there. But yeah. uh, when you were a kid, did you hear those stories? What, did the, In school, were you talking about Thor and the gods and the, was Odin and all this stuff? Yeah. No, it's... Uh, I think 
these days people who live there you know they take all this for granted if you come from if you come visit you know it seems very exotic but that those were the gods up until a thousand years ago a little more than a thousand years ago which is when christianity arrived and today it's a pretty secular country but yeah of course those are those are the stories you grew up with um in high school we actually had um, a semester where we had to read learn to read some old norse and uh, and icelandic and read read the old sagas and even we had to learn i think in elementary school at one point they were teaching us no middle school sorry they were teaching us uh runes the runic alphabet so really now uh, i got a question for you are those fjords that deep yeah <laughs> it's uh that that actually that is a part of i didn't appreciate it growing up there but that is a as an adult, that's really the part of the country that I appreciate the most, the dramatic scenery. The fjords are up to a kilometer deep, and then you have the mountainside up to a kilometer you know, straight up. And, um, you know, it's amazing, amazing contrast in the, in the nature. So so it's one one valley where my, my father's family is from. It's called Valdal. And there's a gash in the mountainside uh, there. And... The story goes that at one time, you know, that's where that's where Thor uh, slayed a dragon or some such, and so there's a he cut with a sword. Really, <laughs> and that's that. amazing. And, and when you stand there and you look up in the mountainside, it's like, yeah, you can imagine that that really happened. So, well, I mean, the other thing is, I remember hearing about uh, well, actually during World War II, and I I think uh, now there's uh, Russian submarines and German submarines had gone on those fjords uh, largely undetected. Is that true? Yeah, the Russians, uh, they, they both both uh, outside the uh, Norwegian coastline and also Swedish uh, coast in the Baltic Sea, they were very active. And uh, I think at one point there was one submarine that, was, that ran aground. <laughs> it was very awkward for the Russians. <laughs> so it was it was uh, it was the stuff of, um, of comedies uh, for sure. It was, uh, it was almost like a, a cliche, um, and there was one. There's one. Uh, I think you can find this on YouTube. I actually found a version that's dubbed in English, where there's a Russian submarine captain. You know, it's played by a famous Norwegian comedian, um, who you know he he basically he he's um, he's run aground and he's been towed in. And and he's explaining to the television reporter that they're only tourists, you know, and <laughs> and uh, and uh, and the television reporter asks, well, what about the border? I mean, should you be crossing the border? And he says, well, you can't see the border underwater, you know. Um, <laughs> and, so, and he had a balalaika, balalaika orchestra and the whole thing. So, wow, so yeah, that, that was the Cold War, right? So the, the difference is different today. It's a little hotter today. I guess we'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah, I know, absolutely. And, you know, my thing, of, uh, I remember when I went to Oslo, I met the guy who founded a company called Snowheta, and he showed me the, uh, was it the Opera House? Uh, and uh, uh, unbelievable. I mean, uh, maybe one of the top designers and probably the top designer in the world, one of them. Anyhow, just incredible what they were doing. So Yeah, also has some really cool modern architecture. Um that I really, really enjoy. I don't like the old part of Oslo so much because it's sort of boring, you know, Stalin-esque architecture, <laughs> a lot of brick buildings, you know, and the city hall is atrocious. But these these more modern buildings are amazing. So. Yeah, people were really nice too. It was amazing, the people. They seem to be, they seem to have a really nice work-life balance as opposed to the valley. It's like, you know, you go, you work your time, you want to live healthy and 
ride bikes and then you know you're done with work at five o'clock i mean it was unbelievable at least the people i was surprised actually almost across the board people like work life balance and satisfied too they seem to be really happy yeah well I, you know i immigrated to the u.s i think it's 31 years ago now i've been here my whole adult life so i'm probably not such a good nordic role model in terms of work-life balance and i i uh, i trended up towards 80 100 weeks 80 or 100 hours a week of work before i started aikido so that's how i i got my balance i guess wow that's but, amazing uh, well i remember that i remember when we were together out there i remember seeing you work all the time so let's yeah. talk about it so you went down through and you know you went to school uh at uh geshein vid Vitter Gandhi, is that what it is? Goalie. Yeah, well, it's a good luck pronouncing all of that. That's, uh, yeah, that is hard. Yeah, so basically, I uh, so so uh, so my sort of origin story is my my folks had a tech company in the process control industry. So I was actually invited to go to um, university, attend university when I was fourteen, um, but I turned it down. There was some logistical challenges. I didn't live in Oslo and so on. So I didn't actually do the university thing. I went to the, the school you're referring to is Yesheim Wiedergona. Um, so that's actually my high school. And so so I started my first company, which is a compiler development tools company um, when I was 17. And then when I was 22, I'd already joined uh, a couple of international standards committees. Now, was that a Odegaard Electronic? Was that your parents' company? That was my dad's company, yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, is it still that's around? Um, it's, it's in, it's around now in a different incarnation. So my, my dad's now turning 86 this summer. He's still doing hardware design, still writing software. He's working on a new edge computer architecture, uh, as we speak. So, so, um, yeah, it's a family. So tech was a family business. Is it a though, very big business? How many employees do you have? Oh, well, so back in the day, um, it was, I think it was about 25 people. So it's mostly people doing engineering um and now for the current incarnation it's really just my my father and then i i try to help a little bit out you know when i have time so he doesn't really want to build a big new company at his age you know he's more focused on developing the technology and finding distributors and finding partners and so on so wow amazing so it keeps him going yeah so i so i ended up here um so i because of my my i was on the uh Sun Microsystems uh, user group as a European, European representative mm -hmm. uh, way back in the day. And I was on these two standards committees. So I was traveling here back and forth anyway, quite a bit. And I think I was 22 when I, when I moved here permanently. And that's when I started my you second. Know, it's amazing. It seems like uh, I remember uh, speaking to um, uh, my friend's executives of Sun back in the early 90s. And then I had lunch with Scott McNeely. Mm -hmm. um, four years ago so right before the pandemic and it was it was interesting because here these incredible companies that come out of stanford university stanford university network right is what it stands for mm -hmm. stood for and then comes out and really dominates the world and then disappears you know what i mean and gets bought and it's amazing i mean really changed the way we do computing and workstations and unix and etc but it's you know that's one of the challenges right with uh the way things are, the technology can be at the top, and all of a sudden, it AOL. I mean, yeah. everybody had AOL at one time, or many people had AOL. 
And now the situation is I don't even I can't even remember the last time I used my OL account. And it's amazing how technology uh, ebbs and flows. So tell us a little bit about you went down through, you did modular two case systems and then uh, developed concept and architecture for software development tools. And the, how big was that company? Oh, well, I, I, it was like, um, I think it was less than 10 people. So, so basically when I moved to Silicon Valley is when, so we, we were able to secure a couple of rounds of financing in, in Oslo, but there was no real venture capital there at the time. There was no really community like you find Silicon Valley or other hubs. So, um, yeah, so I, I basically relocated to, to Silicon Valley and, um, and I started another, um, another entity called Odegaard Labs. And, and instead of doing another product company, I, I really was more interested in doing software engineering research um, because through my, my work on the module two language standard, I'd become very much exposed to formal methods, which is a branch of computer science that deals with, you know, how can you prove correctness and how can you model things in great detail? And, and that really fascinated me. That, that was really my first love, I would say, is, is language design and theoretical computer science. And, and then I quickly discovered that in trying to help uh, clients that most organizations had much more basic problems, the you know, organizational dysfunction, they couldn't agree on what the goals were for the products they were developing and so on. And so, so that's really what seduced me eventually into becoming interested in organizational design. And so my career kind of switched over to organizational design and thinking about the relationship between organizations um, and at the early part of the 21st century. And so, um, and that's been kind of my career uh, trajectory since then. So question for you, how did you get the, so you didn't go to the university, how in the world do you start an engineering company when you haven't gone to university? Um, well, I mean, I was writing my first compiler at age 13, so I just, I grew up with all the toys <laughs> that I, I could want, uh, all the mentoring, you know, I could ever, ever, uh, wish for. Um, so, and I think when you're that young and that's all you're surrounded by, and if you have some degree of aptitude, you know, it's, it's hard not to catch on. Um, and, um, yeah, so back then all, all my friends were, you know, in their thirties, forties, fifties. Um, and it's funny now, a lot of my friends are younger than me. So I'm now the oldest I feel <laughs> in many, in many cases. Uh, but yeah, but back then that was, that was normal. And of course, so I knew a lot about technology and software engineering and some hardware design, but when you're that young, you don't know a lot about life. That sort of comes. Well, how does that go too? I mean, cause part of going to university is the college experience. Do you ever miss it? Well, I'm. I used to be, I would say, a little bit nostalgic about it, which is kind of weird, since I I never went. Um, but it was from watching, you know, a lot of silly American movies, really. But you know, this is what college was like. And then I would ask people, was that really was what it was like? And they said, well, no, no, that's it's not quite as glamorous. And um, and um, depending on your speed of learning, how you like to learn, it may not be the most efficient. Uh, I think if you're going to study something that's entirely new to you and you don't have access to mentoring and, and equipment and all that stuff, then of course it's fantastic. Uh, if you're steeped in it already, I mean, I was invited to to audit, you know, a, a graduate level course at age 14. So, 
you steeped in it already, then it doesn't matter as much as w whether you're a formal student or, or not. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you just absorb it. Just to steep, I mean, there's one thing about getting the 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 um, knowledge. There's another thing about getting the experience. You know, the social experience of going for university too, dating yeah. and all the kind of things that go with it, and you know, events and parties and fraternities and all that kind of stuff. So it was, you know, I, and my, my opinion is probably 60% of going to university is those experiences and 40%, maybe less than 40% is probably yeah. the knowledge. Cause it's not that hard. I mean, you know, I used to read books and I would go into the class and I would get a, a hundred, you know, in a class. And then just because I read in advance, it wasn't like, but the social experience was fun. Who do you go to lunch with? Who are you going to dinner with? Yeah, a road trip, you know, having fun, that kind of thing. So, but let's go down through. Let's talk. I think, I think you're. I think you're right. I. I don't think I was that social a person to begin with <laughs> back then. So, so maybe I couldn't have made that much uh, much use of it. But eventually, you know, over time, we all hopefully become a little bit more well rounded in terms of interests and experiences. So it, it evens out over time. So you went down. You moved out to the valley. You're out there. You've gone down through. Um, product roundtables, you know, you're on the board of Lean Systems Society. So how did you come up with, you know, you have Odegaard Adventures. What was that? Oh, so Odegaard Adventures is not doing much these days. It was just an investment vehicle I set up. Um, that was during the real estate collapse when a lot of things were kind of in flux. Um, and I was, you know, I had a whole bunch of other business ideas. And I just set up a separate vehicle for for pursuing that, and that's that's still a tool that I have available. But my my main focus is on the post industrial institute. Got it. Okay, so let's go down through. So let's talk about some the post industrial institute and what you're doing there, and and you know what kind of customers do you have? You've been doing it for 17 years, so it must be. Is it just yourself? Are you a sole proprietorship, or what is it? Oh no, we're so we have a we have a small team. We're we're um, we're spread out from you know between here and Southern California and 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 also in, in Europe we have a couple of people. So um, so we're about uh, what are we about seven or eight people now. Um, are and, they full time? Are they just uh, like contractors? What kind of people are they? No, I mean so they're involved with the company. We have we have uh, our VP of research is in Copenhagen, for example. Mm -hmm. um so um but very much of a of a um you know in terms of hybrid work a hybrid work company i would say from the start always have been um when i started the company the focus was really on helping companies in the in the it space and software companies become learning organizations and much of the work that had been done in that area was in manufacturing companies because you don't have to go back that many decades and we're a manufacturing economy yeah. and and uh, and the two companies I thought were the most interesting was General Electric and because they had this you know Six Sigma effort and they also had under Welsh they, you know I thought they were doing some good things in terms of leadership and culture and Toyota and and, and Toyota had really built an amazing culture where the purpose of leaders was to help their people grow and so so you know leadership is a process of inducing others to pursue a common goal 
commonly working sexual adult. And the way they did that at Toyota is, is, is they were leading through helping people learn to learn their way to solving the problem, which was reaching the goal. And I remember making the observation to software executives there, whereas Toyota treats their factory workers like knowledge workers, <clears throat> you're treating your knowledge workers like knowledge workers like factory workers. And you had these, you know, famous software death marches. You know, we've all seen those examples of never-ending projects, gobs of money. Uh, mm -hmm. And and so originally the company was called the, the Lean the Lean Software Institute. That was the first name of the company. And because we had some large clients like uh, like Honeywell and especially Lockheed Martin, um, and they were able to achieve some really amazing results with the work that we did, which I, I can tell you more about. The, um, we changed the name of the company to the Lean Systems Institute because these companies were building both hardware and software um, integrated. Mm -hmm. So now um, the first 10 years of the company from 2004 to 14 um, were really focused on solving problems inside large organizations. So if you have a, a uh, an innovation problem or you have a product development problem or you have you know, cultural dysfunction and so on. You have to understand how the different parts of that company are wired together, how they function. And it's not just about workflow. That was the original focus on, you know, manufacturing efficiency it was just, you know, having that lean workflow, um, uh, reducing inventory, you know, making everything flow. Um, we identified five different lenses through which we could look at organizations. Mm -hmm. So, so one was what we call the value stream architecture. That's all about processes and queues and workflow. Mm -hmm. Then you have the information architecture. How do you manage knowledge in the company, explicit knowledge? You know, you have repositories of documents and specs and so on. And often that was, you know, we found that to be quite a mess. Um, then you have product architecture. And so it turns out that the way you organize work and the technology architectures you're working with are closely related. related. So if you're, if you're working on a, you know, say a compiler and you have a four pass compiler and lo and behold, it turns out you have four engineering teams, mm -hmm. uh, that relationship is bi-directional. Uh, and then there's the organization architecture. So how is the organization structured, both the static part and also the part that vary the dynamic aspect of the organization architecture. So, you know, tiger teams and so on are dynamic. Um, uh, and then, um, and then you have what we call the social architecture, which is the, the culture of the company. So mm -hmm. what is the mindset, what are the behaviors, and what are the organizational values, or we call them organizational ideals. So, and very often the behaviors didn't, you know, the, the ideals are up here and the behaviors are down here. They don't quite live up mm -hmm. to their own ideals. Uh, and these five different dimensions are, um, are highly connected. They're interrelated. So you might think you have, for example, a quality problem. Um, and then as you start digging, you realize that they're not managing the information really well because in the early stages of say the product, the whole team was located in one location and it was you know, a pizza, a dog and a whiteboard and five people. Now it's three engineering teams, you know, in, in, in uh, let's say they're in, you know, in Paris and, and Tokyo and New York, and they aren't managing the information in a very disciplined fashion. And so, mm -hmm. they, have, so they have problems with misunderstandings and, and, and specs are not up to date and misunderstandings um, are, are you know, difficult enough when you have a, a, a simple product, if you have a complex product that can take you weeks to recover from. Um, yeah. And, 
Uh, and you start digging a bit more and then you find out, well, of course, the reason is that you had an organizational change because you, you acquired an, you know, a couple of other companies and other work is spread out. So now we have, um, so now we have information architecture, we have organization architecture, and we have a trust issue. So that's a social architecture issue. Um, and, and typically we found that at least three or four out of these five dimensions were involved when you had a performance problem in the organization. So and, what do you do with the, tell me about the post-industrial Institute. What are you doing with it though? Are you doing events or how does it work? So, so, so what happened after 2014 is I discovered that the part that we were missing was that most of the interesting problems that um, um, are there to solve now are not so much inside organizations, although everyone's focused on digital transformation and changing their companies. It's a space that's happening between organizations. So there's this decentralization that's been going on uh, mm -hmm. because of the internet and smartphones and so on. That's really rewiring a lot of industries. Mm -hmm. So, so after uh, so starting in 2015 my my whole focus changed and so all this time of course we were doing uh, educational workshops and consulting uh, strategic advisory work and that's still so you like a consultant you were basically a high-level consultant so what do you do tell yeah. us about the event that's going to take place next week we got about uh three minutes left here tell us about the event that you have and then uh how do people reach you sure so so um so what we did is back in in uh, when we started changing the focus to decentralization, we started embarking, kind of reinventing a lot of management thinking. And we wanted to build a community around our work, uh, which is the post-industrial forum. We, we, we launched that in London in 2019, in the summer, and then in Silicon Valley the following year. Of course, then came the lockdown. So now we're, we're back to doing in-person events again, I'm, I'm very excited to say. And on April 7th here uh, in, in Menlo Park in Silicon Valley, um, uh, I think it's a four. It's four to seven thirty p.m. We have our uh, our uh, first in-person event uh, after the lockdowns. Our first in-person event for, for the year, and that's going to be focused on innovation in a fracturing world. And so we we used to have this dream of a flat world. You know, the, this Friedman's book in the early two thousands talked about this world without barriers and so on. Well, that's not really what happened, right? So we have if you're an if you're an innovative company you face regulatory obstacles at home protectionism abroad so the eu is rolling rolling out uh has rolled out all kinds of digital protectionism measures uh to protect from disruption from from silicon valley mm -hmm. um and now you can see with the situation in ukraine with russia's invasion of ukraine that how geopolitics can erase a tremendous amount of uh, progress in a very very short time so that's mm -hmm. kind of a tumultuous world that we find ourselves in now it's it's not a it's not a flat world it's a fracturing world they talk about that the, the internet's becoming the splinter net right so russia wants to cut cut itself off from the internet uh china has a chinese firewall uh europeans have their regulations and so on so so um and so that's what we're going to be uh discussing at the event so we have speakers from ibm ventures uh from hyundai um from we have one guy who's very interesting uh mark lacour from from uh, he's the editor-in-chief of the oil and gas global network they have mm -hmm. a million there's daily is a huge media empire in the energy industry and uh, how much does it cost Freddie to go to attend what's that the, oh so so um so attending the event is is free um it's it's focused on 
uh, on investors and corporate executives uh, mainly. Um, and investors here in Silicon Valley, it's more venture capital than, than private equity. Private mm -hmm. equity is similar audience when we do stuff in London. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and so so uh, so it's going to be quite a quite an interesting crowd and quite an interesting um, uh, discussion that we're going to have. So how do people get a hold of you? We're coming up to the last minute here. What's the best way? LinkedIn, email. What's the best way to get? Oh so, yeah. So if you if you search on LinkedIn, you can find me there. Uh, our company website is uh, is post hyphen industrial dot institute. So just type in post industrial institute, you, you will find it right away. And you can find more information about the event there, as well as as well as our research and and and, uh, and strategic advisory work and educational work as well. So no, great, Freddie. I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. Yeah, you will. Good seeing you again, my friend. And to my audience out there, my name is Gary Fowler. I'm the CEO, president, and co-founder of GSD Get You Done Venture Studios, premier AI and quantum venture studio located in the heart of Silicon Valley. Stay happy, stay safe, and stay healthy. Stay tuned for another edition of GST Presents. Coming to you shortly. Take care, everybody. Have a nice day. All right. Good to be on the show.